Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is author, ABC News chief political analyst, and diehard independent Matthew Dowd. Mr. Dowd has extensive experience in politics where he's worked for candidates and office holders on both sides of the aisle, including Democrats Dick Gephardt and Lloyd Benson and Republicans George W. Bush, on whose campaign he was chief strategist, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's co-author of the best-selling book, Applebee's America, and his latest book, which just came out this spring, is A New Way, Embracing the Paradox as We Lead and Serve. He's also founded multiple companies, including Listen2.us, a community of independent-minded people sick and tired of gridlock and the lack of common-sense leadership and dedicated to putting the United back in United States. Matthew Dowd, welcome to the show. Great to be here with you. Thanks for having me. So if, if I have your history right here, you grew up in a Republican family, but you started out your political career working for Democrats before switching parties in the late 90s to become a Republican. And of course, not just any run-of-the-mill Republican, but ending up as a chief strategist to President Bush. And and now you're an independent. Uh, that's that's quite an ideological journey. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that, how that sort of transpired. Sure. So I was uh, one of 11 kids in Detroit, and my parents were both uh, conservative. I'm raised in a Catholic family, both conservatives, and voted Republican 95% of the time or more. And when I went off to college, I, you know, as as many times happens, I looked at, started volunteering. I volunteered on a conservative Democrats campaign in Missouri and then worked for Dick Gephardt um, in college while I was in college. And it was that journey, one, the the particular candidates, um, but also just... uh, moving away from my parents and all of the all of the pressures and things of that. And then as the path went along, I worked for a number of Democrats, Lloyd Benson, who was a conservative Democrat, Bob Bullock, who was uh, a Democrat in Texas, who was lieutenant governor. And then I got to know then Governor Bush, who got elected in, uh, in 94 and had gotten out of politics after my last race for the lieutenant governor and then started a couple, a couple of companies. and. Uh, then Governor Bush and Carl Rove reached out to me, who I both got to know, uh, and when they were thinking about running for president in 99 and asked if I'd be willing to work on the campaign. And I had liked what Bush had done in Texas. He worked with a Democratic speaker, a Democratic lieutenant, a Democratic lieutenant governor, and did a lot of great things on education, the economy, and all of that. And I thought to myself, sure, I'll do it, because I, why not? Let's figure out a way to go to Washington and bring the country together through all the divisiveness and polarization. Obviously, it didn't turn out that way, and that's one of the reasons why I had a break in the aftermath of the reelect. but that's sort of the posted step version of my journey. And, and of course, you know, I was thinking when, when you were recounting that, that uh, at least earlier on in that period, that was a time when we we talked about things like conservative Democrats and reaching across the aisle. And, and that clearly is something that at least starting in maybe the 2000s, that has kind of gone away, at least at the national level. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of the a lot of the great obviously uh, things that happen in America happen outside of Washington. But I think Washington has become, for many different reasons, become very divided. It's been a uh, probably a thirty year timeline of how divided it is. I mean, we forget the days when when you know Ronald Reagan used to work with Tip O'Neill as speaker and get things done and make bring consensus and compromise and all that. But over time. It became more polarized during Bill Clinton's presidency and then polarized, increased polarization in in Bush's presidency and then even more divided in President Obama's presidency. So it's been a, a, a movement that has happened over a couple of decades. Right. You know, and you're kind of unique in a sense because you've spent a considerable amount of time in the political system, but now you've also spent a considerable amount of time working for the media that covers the political system. And so you might be uniquely qualified to answer this. So I'm wondering how good of a job do you think that the mainstream media does at giving the American people sort of an accurate and unbiased view of, of what's really going on in politics and, and maybe what can the media do better? So I think the media in many ways, the media is a little bit like our political system, which is, I believe 90, 95% of people that get involved in politics on either side are good people, well-intentioned people. Uh, but the, it's like a sick building and with lead and lead pipes and mold. And when you're healthy and you go in the system, you either get sick or you get out of the system really quickly. And, it, and if you're a well-intentioned person and you don't want to get sick, you leave the system. This is, happens a lot. And I think the media, 95% of the people in media want to discover the truth, tell the truth in the mainstream media, I would say. Uh, it wanted, But I think the system... Much of the system drives for clicks, drives for ratings, and I think sometimes that gets in the way. And so I think the people are working hard, they're well-intentioned, they're trying to do it. We're an environment, one, where it's driven because of the financial pressures, is driven by ratings, but also because there's been this development in the last 15 years of particularly ideological media arms that, that drive people that are passionate on the left, far left and the right to absorb information in that way, in a very confirmation bias way. And it's a struggle with the media. I, I mean, I know for myself that I, I throw flags on either side. I try to say when somebody does good, when Donald Trump has done good, or when the Democrats have done good, or either are not serving our system, the, the amount of uh, vitriol that comes from people um, that it seems like don't want the truth, but just want a position. So I think we're in a unique moment right now where I think journalism really matters. I mean, it's always mattered, obviously. That's why we have a First Amendment. But I think we're in a unique time where discovering the truth has become as one of the most important things that we can do. Absolutely. So do you think that in your – do you have a sense that there are any stories or or sort of types of stories that maybe in this environment tend to be overreported or underreported? Um, yeah, yes. So on the underreported side, um, that I think the things that I think are most lost is giving people context for what this information means. I, I think that we have a lot of these bits and pieces. I, I like to say that we have this abundance of knowledge, but we have a lack of wisdom. So we have, we're drowning in data, 
and we're drowning in information, but we're thirsting for context and perspective. And I think that the media, uh, we're missing more of the media to be able to put all of this in context so people can sort of see what it means and then make decisions, informed decisions, based on the context and based on the perspective of what all of this means. So we're missing that. And, you know, and I think that the media sometimes stays too long on sexy, you know, stories that, that, that thrill people, but aren't actually important um, in our body politic. And so I, I think we could do more on perspective and, and objectivity and giving people a sense of what it all means. And we should do less on the sort of, you know, shiny tinfoil object stories. I think they need to be reported, but I think there's way too much is done on them that distract people from what really matters. Do you think it's that reporters, journalists get sucked into the shiny things, or do you think it's more that a lot of journalists really want to do the deeper stuff, but it's sort of the incentives of the industry push them away from that? I think it's been both. I, I think the natural human tendency, obviously we're all thrilled with some big big, big tinfoil story comes up and we all want to talk about it and tell our friends and always oh, that amazing. And so we, it's just a human tendency to sort of do that. But I also think that, that there's a drive and there's the, the metrics that has been established for a while have all been a, a surrounding how many people engaged on it, how many people clicked on it, how many people watched it. And I think the fundamental place of journalism we need to ask ourselves what our mission is. And if our mission is the truth and our mission is giving people actionable information, consumers and voters and citizens actionable information that matters, then I think that those, those metrics that have been established on, on, that are related to financial barometers sometimes take away from it. So I think it's a combination of both. Yeah. Now, I want to talk a little bit about your, your, one of your books. Uh, you co-authored Applebee's America back in 2006, and it's been my experience that most political books have a pretty short shelf life, but it really seems to me that a lot of the themes that you explore in the book are still really relevant today. And so I'm wondering if you could explain what Applebee's America is and the extent to which you think maybe the people who live there are, are responsible, uh, for better or worse, I guess, not just for the rise of Donald Trump, but also the really significant gains Republicans have made across the board since 2010. Um, well, thank you. And, I, you know, and it's a book I co-authored uh, with Ron Fournier and Doug Sosnick, who was Clinton's uh, main advisor. So it was Clinton's main advisor with Bush, me, best chief strategist of Bush, and Ron Fournier, who was head of the uh, Bureau, Washington Bureau for the Associated Press. And our idea that was there was missing things out there and there was big waves going on. I think often in media and in politics, people in politics, they focus on the earthquakes and they focus on the volcanoes, but they don't focus on the tectonic shifts that are going on. And the our shifts in our country for a while have been, we've been shifting dramatically on our culture, on our politics, on our economy. And in the book, we talk about that and we talk about the best leaders understand that. And part of what reason why Applebee's America was was chosen, and that is the sort of way we which we told the story of where we are today and what leaders might do to succeed, is Applebee's. It was a place in sort of mainstream middle America where people gathered, uh, where they ate their meals. It was out of outside the coast, the sort of coastal 
urban dynamics. And it was like what was going on in Re-America. And we sent in the course of that, and I knew it in, in, in my, the campaigns I'd done, there was a real fundamental um, disruption happening and frustration and anxiety related to all of those huge shifts going on, as I say, in our economy and our culture and all of that. And it was coming. It was why the, w- voters would vote Republican one election and turn around and vote Democrat the next and do, it, do the same thing in election after election because they were searching for that. And I think all of that, and then the idea of that values really matters more when people's presidential decisions and their, their highest political decisions matters more than issues. I mean, I think the thing that people misread is, is that issues and personality aren't as important as values. Issues and personalities are only important as what they indicate about bigger values that people care about. And those bigger values, when not focused on by our political leaders in Washington have been allowed to create this atmosphere of incredible frustration. And it actually, as I say, Donald Trump was unprecedented, but Donald Trump's rise was predictable. Maybe not him particularly, but the type of candidate that rose was very predictable. Yeah. And, you know, a lot, of course, after Donald Trump was elected, there was a lot about how the mainstream media didn't get Trump voters and journalists were basically, you know, these coastal elites who live in a, a bubble and don't understand real Americans. And, and I'm wondering, do you, do you think that's an, an accurate assessment? And, and if it is, do you feel that the media has sort of taken that to heart and done a better job of trying to understand regular Americans since the election? Oh, uh, well, I think it's a it's a valid criticism of of much. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I commute to New York to do my things for ABC and live in Texas and grew up, as I said, in a in a very diverse, large family in Detroit, uh, which gave gives me a perspective of this, which is why I said early on, as, as you know, I said early on, long before most others said that Donald Trump would be the GOP nominee because I sensed this out there. I. I think that part of the problem in, with much of journalism is that it's based in New York or based in Washington, and it can be very homogeneous. The, the worldview can be very uh, in, in line with just one perspective on this. And I think people try um, to overcome those things. They try to look at it. They all do a best job, but that's where they sit, breathe, and live, and that's who they're around. And so sometimes you lose perspective when you're in that environment if you don't have a diverse for diverse diversity, not only from you know sex, race, but worldview, how you grew up, culture, all of those things. Uh, I remember one time I was sitting in an ABC meeting, uh, and I said something like there was something came up, and I said something like I own five rifles, and it was as it was as if I was like came down from Mars, and they were like, what's going on in Texas that you would have to own five rifles for? It was a there was just no sense that somebody could do that. And I think in the aftermath of this election, the media, and they often do this, is doing a, a, an important course correction in understanding the entirety of the country, not just the pockets they live in. Right. I want to talk about one of the uh, companies that you found, and I think the most recent one, and that's um, uh, Listen to Us. And I wonder if you could talk about sort of why you started it, uh, what it does, and what your goals for it are. So I, I started it just as my attempt because I believe that our, we're, we're, that we're in an incredibly broken time. I worry about our democracy. 
I think that, that all democracies are contingent on the ability to get to the common good. And when we've tribalized and the countries become tribalized, it's very hard to do that. And when you become so tribal, democracies begin to be unhealthy and fail. And then, so that's one part of it. And our founders were very opposed to this tribalization. The founders of, of this country were very opposed to partisanship and tribalization. So my thought is, is, we all agree on some fundamental things. This was started, our country, our country was started by putting our own particular concerns behind, second, and looking in the common interest of the country. And so I thought in just my attempt to sort of say, how can we actually, how can we come together in some level of, of community of people that believe the same thing and push back against that tribalism. So it is just my own you know, personal uh, plea. And, and there's lots, thousands of people have joined and become, you know, sign on and, and read and try to engage in this. But I think you're seeing all of that around the country. I think you're seeing very many groups along the same way rising and saying our democracy is at stake and we have to push back against this. Right. You know, I, I noticed on the site you list a number of key principles, and one of them that really caught my caught my eye was common sense for the common good. Now, when I saw that, it, it's always seemed to me that most of our elected officials in Washington, they're people who uh, are are really smart, really hardworking, and their advisors are the same. And so, do you feel that they don't have common sense? Well, I, I, if they started with it, a lot of them have lost it. So I, I would say um, I, I think that there is too much of an ends justify the means uh, dynamic in Washington at so many different levels. And I criticize both sides for this, that they say we are going to win the election. They sort of tell themselves we're going to use whatever means necessary to win the election. But once we win, we'll do good. The problem is, is that when the means are bad, then you usually the ends aren't good. And I think that that just returning to a sense of does this make sense, losing our ideological sort of anchors that we have that doesn't allow us to get to a point where we could build consensus, agree on a common set of facts, which is a real problem in this, and figure out what's in the best interest of the American public. It seems it seems pretty rational, pretty common sense, but for some reason it's very hard to do in Washington, DC because of the dynamics that exist there today. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there, there's another key principle that you mentioned, uh, open and transparent servant leadership. Now, servant leadership, I think, is a concept that might not be familiar to a lot of people. And so I'm hoping you can explain uh, what it is and why you feel it's particularly important. Um, I, I, I think that... Uh, <laughs> I think that that we have to get back to a time where we have a level of we, we have humble servant leaders again that people serve they they engage with the they engage with people in a common sense way they they let go of their ideological anchors that they that they have a level they're strong people want people that are strong but they're humble that they can admit mistakes um, which the American public is is so awesome about the ability to sort of say, okay, great, and, and forgiveness and moving on. Uh, the public wants to believe you've learned, and you cannot learn and, and create what we need without some level of uh, humility and, and the idea that, of service. And so that's one of the reasons why I called the, the subtitle of the book, um, Embracing the Paragraph, as we lead and serve, because the leaders that we need are not only people that are leading, but also serving, because that's who most of us will follow. 
Right. No, I, I I wanted to mention, of course, it seems to me that a lot of what is on uh, uh, Listen to Us is very much connected to your, your latest book, which which came out just a few months ago, and that's it's a new way. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about why you decided to write it and sort of the sort of things that you hope that people might take away from it. So I, I started jotting down notes on this uh, five or six years ago and just jotted notes down and wrote some things as I went on for over the last five or six years and then let it sit and then we'll write some more. And then right after the election, I decided um, it was time and it was seemed to be a important moment, um, not driven by Trump, but Trump was rep, president Trump was representative of a lot of what was happening in the country and what we needed to deal with. And so I wrote it not only as a, a as, as a, an examination of our country, but as a plea for all of us to lead. And, and one of the things I want people to understand about the book is it's not like, oh, here's the way for Washington to be fixed, but how do we do it? How do we in our smaller towns, communities, neighborhoods, in our families, how do we be the leaders that we need? Because in the end, people in Washington don't lead. They ultimately follow and they follow where we want to go. And the best leaders uh, figure out where the country wants to go, where we want to go, and they get one half step in front of them and do it in a constructive way. And so the sort of the ideas behind the book are really to sort of call each of us to embrace the idea that we're leaders, actually. And whether it's three people that we talk to or 300 people or 3,000 people, uh, we can actually help make the change uh, that we need in this country starting. It has to start at the local level. Um, no change in America has ever worked, and no change in the world has ever worked when it's top down. It only works when it's bottom up, starts in the grassroots, and builds, and then it goes national. And that's really fundamentally what's at the basis of the book. It's encouraging people in all of their places that they live to start leading. So, I mean, that local level emphasis, I thought, was particularly interesting. But it seems to me, at least in terms of people's interest and what the news media reports, a lot of what goes on in local and state level politics sort of takes a back seat to the Washington, uh, the Washington and national stuff. Do you, do you feel that that's that's a problem and that's something the media should try to address in some way? Uh, yeah, and I think that the media, I think in the aftermath of this election, there was a discovery that there was, as they stayed in their sort of large national silos, that there were, they were missing a lot of what was going on around the country in all, in all kinds of places, not just Trump country, but Clinton country or whatever all these elements are. And I think that too often we think we're going to elect a president or we're going to pick a national leader and they're somehow going to fix it. It never works that way. It only works as if the change is emerging in cities, towns, and states, and then a national leader w observes that and is able to sort of constructively move it and replicate it in various other places around the country. So I think that fundamentally, when you look at change in the world, it's all come locally, and change in our country has all come locally. It's all been demonstrated that it works. Uh, democracy is a great experiment, and the greatest experiments that we have are happening locally. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm wondering, you know, you, you talk about a lot of leadership principles and it occurred to me, well, how well does President Trump adhere to them? What sort of what sort of marks would you give him in terms of uh, being a servant leader and the other principles that you discuss? <laughs> well, I, I think Donald Trump. So Donald Trump, I, I think we're going to look back at Donald Trump as the great accelerator. 
um, it, 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 he's going to accelerate us to the change that I talk about that we need uh, much faster than if he hadn't if he hadn't come in and held office. And it's either going to be by virtue of things he does positively or by virtue of negative reaction in, around the country to what he is doing. And so though, though the moment we're in, it for many people, is disruptive and destructive, and they're very concerned and anxious and fearful about it. I think he's going to help move us to the place that we need need to be. Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, in the end, that is, that is ultimately how democracies move. Uh, in, in our country, we we look at leaders; they either fit or don't fit. And uh, I, I think Donald Trump. If you look at the paradoxes, the eight paradoxes I mentioned in the book, I think Donald Trump. If you look at each one, is overly exercised, and his muscles are overbuilt on one side and very underutilized on the other side. And I think that's a problem that he's had. So he, yes, he is a strong leader, as I talk about this, but he's underexercised on a level of humbleness and servant and humility, right? And I, he think he's really well on confidence, uh, but not a lot on, you know, admission of mistakes and, and being able to demonstrate he's learned and why he's learned in those offices. He's, at times, he's, he's, he seems to be very idealistic in what he wants, but then he, then he seems to abandon those as he completely abandoned those as he moves out into the world, that's idealism versus realism. Um, it, you know, People love him, but he seems to come from a place of fear, right? He people, and so all of those paradoxes, I I would say that he's in, but he's not demonstrating his ability to lead through those paradoxes. He he has a tendency to way overdo one and way underdo the other. Yeah. Would you say in a way he's almost kind of a reaction to President Obama, who seemed to maybe, in my view, do a little bit better on the, the humility aspect, but maybe not as good in some of the strong leadership and confidence aspects of it? I think all these elections that happen are all reactions. I mean, President Obama was a reaction to President Bush. His, his leadership was a reaction to President Bush. President Trump is a reaction in many voters' minds, to President Obama. And I think if you're going to, if, if my um, counsel to the Democrats um, in this uh, is don't go find a person exactly like Donald Trump, but on your ideological side, put a mirror up to Donald Trump. And that's the leader. If you're going to want a leader in response to Donald Trump, it's going to be a mirrored version of Donald Trump, the opposite on many of those big values and many of the ways he, he interacts with people. The other thing about Donald Trump is that I don't think people understand, and I think many lessons were wrongly learned from this election, is Donald Trump won in spite of himself, not because of himself. So his tone, his manner, the way he did, I mean, he ended up on election day with, with 60% of the country unfavorable to him. And so there was a bad reaction. He, he was successful in winning the Electoral College because he was running against a, and also a, a similarly unfavorable candidate in Hillary Clinton. And so when we look at this, I think take, people should take away the idea there are certain things about Donald Trump they like, strength, confidence, and those sorts of things. But there are many things about him uh, that they don't like, even people that voted for him. You know, 25% of people that voted for Donald Trump did not think he was qualified to be president and did not think he had the temperament, but voted for him anyway. And so... As we move forward, the leaders, I would say, look for something opposite of Donald Trump, not like Donald Trump. 
Interesting. Now, are there any? Is there anyone up and coming, or any members of Congress who you see it, and you get you get the sense, yes, that person gets it. That person embodies these principles of of leadership that that I think make for a good, you know, strong, humble leader. Um, I think there's people with um, with elements of it, though I haven't seen anybody uh, in Washington that's fully embodied it. I mean, there are people. I think on both sides, I, I mean, it's somebody like, I think Al Franken uh, sort of knows to the grindstone. I think Ben Sass from Nebraska, I think Kirsten Gillibrand from New York, they all have elements of it that, that they do, but I haven't seen somebody that fully encompasses it. But I would actually, if I were looking out, I would look out in who's the mayors, who are the people out in the country that aren't in Washington, um, that uh, that are doing the job well and doing it in a local way that they can then make the argument, this is what we need to do in Washington. And I think one of the things that came out about the French election is that if you're upset with Donald Trump, who is a sort of close the border nationalist, you know, uh, manner that he has, that that candidate was obviously represented with Le Pen in France. You can beat a candidate like that, but you have to have an outsider centrist which is what Macron was, was an outsider centrist. And I think having an insider from Washington is not necessarily the best response um, to Donald Trump. Right. Yeah. So uh, one final question for you, because I know we're running, running out of time. But again, since you've had so much experience in Washington and with the media, I'm wondering what... Uh, books, websites, apps, podcasts, or, or, you know, other resources, would you recommend to listeners who want to kind of get behind sort of the sensationalistic surface stuff and, and want to get a kind of a deeper and fuller understanding of American politics? So I, I would say, and not in mentioning any particular ones, I think the more diverse your, your reading, listening um, um, habits are, the better you're going to be. And so I would say if you're a conservative, then read some stuff that's from progressives um, or independents. And I would say if you're a liberal progressive, read some things from conservatives. I would say if you're interested, if all you do is spend your days on certain topics, then read books and things that are totally outside. So I actually think reading more on philosophical conversations or spiritual conversations is a benefit to anybody that wants to lead. Don't just concentrate on politics and the, 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 the columns and all that are politics. Look, look outside those. So create a diverse environment where you engage in. And one of the things I use Twitter for, which I would recommend people, I use almost Twitter as a news feed. And though I'm on it and I, and I say certain things, I follow a lot of different people that are very diverse to see what they're saying, to see what they're writing, to sort of get a sense of what's really happening in America. So, I, you know, I think people should read both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the Washington Post. I, I, I think people should observe what's happening on Fox News and MSNBC. I, I think all of the ways that you can sort of get out of your own biases and prejudice and expand is going to be beneficial. Yeah, I, I think that's just great advice. And with that great advice, we'll close. Uh, Matthew Dowd, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Great to be here. Thanks for the conversation. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you have any suggestions for future guests, or if you have any thoughts, questions, comments, or criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. 
Our email is mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where we post throughout the week, is facebook.com slash page. We're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. We'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast service you use. Sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also helps out a lot. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through the PayPal or Patreon links on our website. We especially appreciate those monthly sustaining contributions through Patreon. They really do help out a lot. If you enjoy the show, you should check out the Politics Guys weekly newsletter. You can take a look at previous newsletters and sign up to have it delivered to your email inbox on our website, politicsguys.com. We'll be back with a new show next Wednesday. We hope you join us.